This week is a former KROQ Los Angeles radio superstar who decided to leave that station after 30 years of enormous success and move back to his native England where he grew up as a child. Known to his legion of fans by the nickname Bean, he co-hosted with Kevin Ryder a wildly popular morning show called Kevin and Bean that ran on KROQ for three decades and landed both performers in the Radio Hall of Fame. Then he announced his retirement from the show and moved to England to get away from the pressures of the Los Angeles radio industry and his openly expressed distaste for the tone and direction of American politics. At present, now back in Great Britain, he co-hosts a show on podcast radio in London with another former KROQ broadcaster from his Kevin and Bean days, Ali McKay, and the show's called A Cup of Tea and a Chat with Ali and Bean. Our guest this week is Gene Bean Baxter. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Interview, the weekly podcast from Podcast One for media freaks, pop culture aficionados, political junkies, and the philosophically curious. Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, the Podcast One app, and Spotify, and for following our Tuesday tweets announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MH Interview. I can be reached directly via email at michaelatalkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. An uninterrupted conversation with Gene Bean Baxter. Gene, do do your friends call you Gene or do they call you Bean? I mean, Gene and Bean, you know, rhyme and all that. And uh, there's so much mystery uh, surrounding you, (laughs) partially because you and I have never (laughs) spoken before this moment and we've never met, but we've heard of each other forever. So is it Gene or is it Bean? Well, it's a childhood nickname. I was Bean as a little boy, I think because it rhymed with Gene, because I was always rather tall. I think it came from Bean Pole. So I grew up being called Bean, which is how I ended up using it on the radio. It's not a radio name. I didn't invent it for the air. It's what people were already calling me. That's why I used it. But when I left the Kevin and Bean show back in 2019, I thought, I'm a grown-ass man who's being called Bean. Maybe it's time as I meet new people in England to introduce myself with my name, Gene. So here in the UK, almost everybody knows me and calls me gene in america almost everybody knows me as bean so i answer to both one of the funny things about being in radio is that we often pick up um you know affectations uh nicknames uh uh just things that in the the normal civilian world would be looked at as funny and they stick with us and we think of them as our names and then if we go out of the business or we as you in your case you move to another place or a different platform it uh we think it's normal to be, you know, whatever the silly name is or the, the title uh, is. And yet we get funny looks and, and then we carry it on. Something that was very hip when we were 23 years old. We carry it on when we're 70. <laughs> well, Michael, I have a great story about this. And I'm sure that this is a story that's going to resonate with a lot of people in radio. I went to work at one time in my career at WAVA, a station I'm sure you remember. It was a big kind of a powerhouse top 40 station for a long time in Washington, D.C. And I had come over from WPGC, the rival in the market, and I was using my air name Gene Baxter at both, I thought, until about 20 minutes before my first shift as the night guy on WAVA when the program director, Tom Kent, said, oh, you can't use 
Gene Baxter. You can't use that name. And I said, that's my name. That's what I've been using my whole career. He said, oh, that's a terrible name for nighttime top 40 radio. And I don't know if this is because he already had the jingle or what, but he told me, and he's the boss. I couldn't argue. He said, now you're Flash Phillips. <laughs> so for three and a half years, I had to be Flash Phillips, okay. a name I had no input in selecting, but that's just how radio worked. I was kind of actually kind of grateful when I finally left and moved west and could leave Flash behind. Well, that's an old story in radio that they would have uh, specific jingles with the names of certain jocks. And, 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 and there was a time when jocks all wanted a sound alike, particularly during the days of the Drake format, where everybody mm-hmm. had a similar sound. And so they would just take on the name of the guy before them. And the, the listeners didn't know that they were listening to a new DJ. But F- Flash, what was the last name? Flash what? Flash Phillips was the Flash name. Phillips. Yeah. That, there's an uh, example. Suppose you had gone on to be Flash Phillips. So now you're, now you're moving back to England. It's 30 some odd years later. And uh, hi, I'm Flash Phillips. <laughs> right. it's, it's absurd. By the way, how lucky did you get falling in love with radio with an already built-in perfect radio name? You didn't even have to think about changing something that was too long or hard to pronounce or foreign. You were Michael Harrison. That's great. Yeah, bingo. Yeah, there I am. It just sounds like the the all-American generic white bread name that uh, fits uh-huh. in. No ethnicity, you know, no, uh, no Mediterranean or – People can um, spell it. You know, you can spell it. Uh, of course, there are people that that have – well, that's a whole other subject. People who have unusual spellings of common names. <laughs> like what's – why oh. do you want to go through your whole life having to tell people, no, it's not spelled that way? You know, well, I, I, I you think tell anyone should be who's easy. having a baby in the 21st century, they all insist on taking a name we all know like Melissa and somehow putting a Y and a J in it. I don't get it either, Michael. <laughs> So, so 30 years, first of all, congratulations. I, I was in the audience, um, I, I guess it was last year. At this point, I'm, I, I can't keep track of where 2019 became 2020 and then became 2021, and I'm not alone at that. That's that's like a very current right. theme about how we're all becoming time foggy in our brains. But I sat there in New York and saw you receive uh, your inductee uh, moment, a great moment for you, uh, the, uh, the, the the Kevin and Bean show um, being in the Hall of Fame for radio. Mm-hmm. And then you're you're leaving and you're gone and, and, and uh, you're in England. And I didn't even realize you were originally from England. Uh, quite a story. Um Give me give me a couple of minutes just on your look back at this variety show that you did on an alternative rock station in L.A. Uh, that was basically a talk show. You had music in it, but you did celebrity interviews. You had a cast of characters. Did you see yourself as a talk show host or as a DJ during those years? Well, great question, and it evolved as we went further on. As we got better at it, we started to focus and emphasize the things that we found out that we could do that resonated with our audience. But uh, just for the record, November 8th, 2019 was where you and I didn't meet in that room in New York City when Kevin and I were inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame. My last day on K-Rock, almost to the day 30 years, was the day before. Then I had a fly day out to New York. And then uh, did the ceremony. And then within a month, we were on a plane and moving back to the UK. So the K-Rock job was – it never should have happened. It was one of those great broadcasting accidents. I had no experience as a talk show host or as a morning man. Neither did Kevin. We had been top 40 DJs in our respective cities up until that point. 
But we were really good friends and we had great chemistry and we used to be on the air together at KZZP in Phoenix where we met. So when I ended up in San Francisco at the short-lived KXXX, uh, the Emmis station there, I had him come up one weekend and I said, this would be really fun. We should put a tape together because we looked around, Michael, and we saw that the morning guys were the guys that were having all the fun. They got to meet all the celebrities. They got to do all the traveling. They got to do the live broadcast. It just seemed like a blast. And we both loved radio and we had grown up listening to other morning men that we love. Some of my heroes included Don Geronimo, for instance, was a guy that I I was obsessed with. And Steve Dahl was another guy and Jonathan Brandmeier. There were all these people that we admired. So we said, maybe we should try to do do that. So he flew up to San Francisco one weekend. We put a tape together. Long story short, it ended up in the hands of Andy Schoen, who was a fairly new program director, a young man himself at K-Rock in Los Angeles. Now, he inherited a station that already at that point in the late 1980s was a legendary set of call letters. It's a station I'm sure you've been hearing about for the last 50 years, right? It ends up being one of the most influential and greatest rock stations of all time. But at the time, The ratings were very, very low. It was such a fringe station, and Andy had a bigger vision. He said, you know what? We need to expand this audience, and one of the ways that we're going to do it is put a real morning show on, not a morning show that's playing a bunch of music because that's that's easily duplicated duplicated. Let's put in some some talent. Let's go up against Jay Thomas and let's go up against Rick Dees and let's go up against all these other shows that are on the air. And rather than hire somebody who was already doing a show that may have some bad habits and who maybe wouldn't be able to get that K-Rock attitude, which was very important on a station like that because it was an alternative station. You wanted somebody who wasn't mainstream. He said, let's take a chance on these young guys who are very smart, quick learns. Let's put them in there and teach them how to do it. And that's exactly what they did. So when we opened up that mic on that first morning show, January 2nd, 1990, I don't think we could talk for more than two or three minutes at that point. It didn't take long before, as we had more and more experience, we were able to talk for five minutes and then we were able to talk to 10 minutes. And next thing you knew, we were dropping all the songs or playing as few as we could get away with. Uh, And it just it just evolved. And when we grew on the job. We didn't know how to do a morning show, but we learned as we went, and we had a lot of great feedback from our audience, and it ended up working out really, really well for us. It did work out very well, and uh, it, you know, all those years, you know, from the perspective of talkers, I've always found it fascinating that there's this whole realm of talk radio out there that people don't think of as being, you know, talk radio. They think of it as, you know, shock jocks or or, or music radio. When in fact, most of the uh, the mornings on these kinds of stations are uh, pop culture talk. I consider it. It's a it's a contemporized, you know, uh, celebrity gossip, social issues relationships uh movies sports stuff <laughs> you know it's just it, it, it's <laughs> well it, i mean and you're and you're nailing you're you're hitting the nail on the head michael because that was one of the things especially since we were both coming from top 40 radio we were in the mainstream in terms of things that we followed and knew about and cared about but we also looked at things from a funny angle that ended up being an alternative and ended up we just were the right guys at the right station at the right time but i think one of the things and one of the reasons our show was able to grow and be far more successful in our day part than the rest of the station was for most of the years that we worked there is because we weren't just speaking to people who were into alternative music. We weren't only talking about Nirvana and the Smashing Pumpkins and Metallica. That's limiting, right? We wanted to talk about everything. We wanted to talk about the biggest TV shows and the biggest movies and the biggest stars and the biggest sports sports stories and all of that. Even if you didn't care about the music that K-Rock played, you could tune in and a lot of people did because they enjoyed our take on the events of the day. 
This is still an issue in uh, in American radio as to uh, what the definitions of formats are. And uh, I've always felt that uh, talk radio, news talk radio, or talk radio in general, or even music radio are missing the boat by not understanding that there are so many new formats out there that um, have to be identified and categorized. The trade publications used to do that. I was very involved in that in the younger days of my career as a broadcaster and a trade editor or trade publisher uh, in terms of categorizing formats so that people knew what to do. Uh, because mm-hmm. if, when the categories get messed up, People don't know where they fit in the industry, and sometimes really good things are not explored. For example, what you guys were doing in the morning could have been a format all day long. Some stations actually did that, where, where it's just a morning show all day, uh, where you don't well, have to then go uh, to music. Exactly. And I was uh, I was lucky enough to live in Los Angeles when Kalis X went on the air and was and I know it wasn't the first, Michael, you you know that. But they they were that's what they tried to do. You know, within the Howard Stern years with him and then all the other shows they had on throughout the day, they were trying to do a morning show around the clock. They didn't play any music. I still and I'm sure you've written about this a lot in talkers. I still don't understand why FM more youthful targeted programming it has still not been successful almost anywhere what do you think the problem is it sounds like it's just i mean if you look at the success of so many podcasts that would be perfect on the radio i don't understand why there aren't more radio stations like that with that kind of slant on talk i think the problem uh, radio has had in dealing with targeting young audiences is a constant mistake that they have made almost across the board and all the way back for decades. And that is to think that young people must be spoken down to, that young people are only interested in frivolous things, that young people are not intelligent, and that young people don't have standards of etiquette and ethics and um, taste. Uh, this is what I think is the problem. And and I think that... Um, uh, radio could attain a much younger demo if it started talking to young people with respect for their intelligence and uh, for their, um, you know, their character uh, and dealing with their problems. Uh, there the are so feel- many radio stations out there that are in bad shape financially, Michael. Why yeah. isn't somebody hiring you as a consultant <laughs> to put them on that road? Uh, I, this is how I started the business. You know, I, my background is is underground rock, you know, album rock. I was a pioneer of that. And You're um, Mr. KMET, right? And Mr. Uh, WNEW. So you so you so you you know that much about me. Uh, so when you talk about, you know, KROQ being a legendary music station in LA, much of that came after I left. I left in um Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I left KMET in 1985. I had mm-hmm. been there since uh, – 86 I left. I left – no, it was 85, I think. Isn't it funny how we forget our own resumes? And <laughs> um, I started there uh, in the early mid-70s. I was on the air for 11 straight years, and part of that I served as consultant, and part I served as program director. And KMET was uh, was the, the 800-pound gorilla for a long time, and KROQ sure. was the alternative rock station that had the smallest audience the big the big you know bruisers the champions were klos and kmet fighting it out and then Mm -hmm. on the other side of the dial you had for a while k west and you had Mm -hmm. uh, kroq kroq was the was the one that the really weird kids listened to (laughs) 
That's right. <laughs> but that's right. But well, years later, I'm, you're I'm part right of the there with you with you. just astonishment that there aren't more stations out there doing FM talk. I honestly thought when Kalis X went on the air that it would be successful and that it would be duplicated all over the country. And I thought by now we'd have that. I and and frankly, and I don't want to get off on too many tangents here because you and I, I suspect Michael could talk all day. Yeah. But frankly, I don't understand why all of the AM talks, all of the AM talk stations like the giants, like KFI in in Los Angeles, why they aren't on FM yet. It's insane to me that well, they're, they're dragging their feet on something like that. The radio industry is beset by a number of problems that have nothing to do with logic or programming, has to do with debt, finances, and uh, mm-hmm. years and years of mistakes made by generations of uh, layers of management that have come and gone. And um, much of the last uh, 10, 15 years has been spent undoing the problems as opposed to being able to sit down and go, okay, what do we got here? What, what, are, what are the basic unencumbered assets that we have that we could exploit as opposed to how do we stay alive for another quarter and keep the stock yeah. happy. But so that's, I just, if that's you want to get a 35 year old to listen to KFI in Los Angeles, how are you going to get somebody to go to their house and explain to them what an AM radio is? I mean, aren't you just dig- digging a really deep hole for your future? At some point, they're just going to fall off a cliff with these demos. I just don't get it. It's one of the great mysteries of radio to me. Short, short uh, planning. That's all. It, it, rather than long-term planning, short planning, uh, quarter to quarter planning as opposed to decade to decade, year to year. There Can I tell you how interesting it is, Michael, having the perspective now of living in Europe uh, again, that less than 50% of radio, for instance, in the United Kingdom is listened to on FM radio. It's on, it, we're digital platforms. I mean, that's what we do here is we have DAB, digital radio here that's all over the country. Almost all of the radio stations in England are national radio stations for that reason. And most people don't even think about AM or FM anymore. Which is very interesting. And, and, and obviously that's the, that's the path that we're going to be following in the States going forward because it makes a lot of sense. You're on Podcast Radio, which is a radio station that plays podcasts. It's a multi-platform. It's really a media station, which is a term that I, I like to use. And um, uh, I have trouble explaining that uh, to uh, my American colleagues uh, because we have I have two shows that are on that station that you're on. You, you, you have a, a show there, and, uh, and, you, and you do work with them. Um, Explain that it's it's both a website and it's on the air. What mm-hmm. do you mean it's on the air? What and, and it's hard to explain to Americans. As a matter of fact, maybe you can explain <laughs> to Americans how how well, you know because 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 we have the the Michael Harrison rap and we have the Michael Harrison interview, uh, which are the the Michael Harrison interview is a podcast. The Michael Harrison rap is a radio show. Uh, the Michael Harrison uh, rap is a radio show that can serve as a podcast, and the Michael Harrison podcast is a podcast that could serve as a radio show but That's what right. is the, what That's is the right. nature what is the nature of those uh, stations well podcast radio I, 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 is it officially the first I haven't done the research it's the first that I was aware of as a station decided to go on the air and they applied for the frequency uh, we call it a frequency that's just an old radio habit it's just a slot on digital radio and currently we are on in London we are on in Surrey which is a London suburb we are on in Glasgow in Scotland we are on in Manchester and we're on in Birmingham right now all major cities in the UK many people also stream us through the app or they listen to the British radio player or they stream us through the website or they use their Alexa or smart speaker to listen to us. So we got listeners, you know, like every radio station, we got listeners from all over. But the decision was made, and I think it was a smart one, to say, look, over a million podcasts, now close to two, 
is overwhelming for most people who are dipping their toes into podcasts for the first time. Hey, I've heard about podcasts. Maybe they've heard about a celebrity. Oh, Will Ferrell has a podcast. He's doing a show as Ron Burgundy. I'd like to hear that, but I don't really know how it works. So what they're trying to do at Podcast Radio is explain all that and make it easy for people to understand what podcasts are, how to get podcasts. And you know what? You don't know where to start. Here's a bunch of podcasts that we're going to schedule throughout the day, just like we do your favorite songs. If you hear something you like, and we're not always just trying to keep people in the tent. We're saying, look, if you like this episode of The Wrap, this guy's name is Michael Harrison. Here's where you can go to find out more. He's got a 100 other episodes in this series. You should go listen to those, too. So we're really just spreading the word, just trying to get as many people as possible to get hooked on any podcast so they'll they'll get into the universe of podcasts because I think that's that, – you know, I think there's a, a still a tremendous amount of room for growth in podcasts. And we schedule – you know, we schedule those, uh, those episodes at the same time every week and you hope that people will just kind of make it a habit if they want to do it that way or if they just want to go off on their own and listen to them in their own own time on demand. They're welcome to do that too. I always tell people who don't know much about podcasts, Michael, that it's very much like now the history of recorded music for the most part is available at your fingertips. When you go home tonight and you feel like listening to some music, you'll open up Spotify and you may freeze because every song you've ever thought of is there. Where do I start? I don't even know what to begin with. So that's how come you end up listening to Led Zeppelin 4 again because there's nobody who's narrowing it down for you and say, hey, try these 100 songs. Knowing what I know about you, I think you'll like some of these. That's what we're doing with podcast radio is we're introducing them with a bunch of shows that we think people will like the first time they hear them and then they can go on and, and start their own journey from there. And it maintains the uh, the role of the curator and the presenter That's right. as, as an important part of radio that um, American radio has lost uh, for the most part, the, the curator who makes something sound better by setting it up for you. And that doesn't even have to be new. You know, new music discovery curators are, are absolutely vital. But even older stuff uh, can be very interesting when presented with new eyes and um, a, a new insight or fresh. Uh, fresh oh, uh, look, at, look at the career your friend Jim Ladd has had for that very reason putting music together intelligently, telling you why he's doing it and telling you the stories behind those songs and just making it captivating, essential listen. It's the same thing we're trying to do. And my job as a pod jock, and I'm one of several on the radio station, on podcast radio, is to give some context. Like, for instance, our audience hearing your show for the first time may not know who you are, Michael. So we'll say this is a guy who's considered the dean of talk radio in America. He's been running a trade publication for talk radio stations for 30 years. He worked at all of these places. He's in touch with everything that's going on in the world of politics. So we'll, whatever the issue is that you're talking about on that episode, we'll try to set it up to give you some credibility so that people will go, oh, this guy sounds pretty smart. I'll check it out. What a difference than just having a name and it and being there on a list. Exactly. So, so let's let's talk about your podcast. You have a show. Um, a uh, I believe it's called a cup of tea and a chat. Have I got it right? Yeah. Um, what do you think of that uh, name, Michael? I, I'm getting some pushback from my partner Ali McKay on that. You think it's a good name or a bad name? I think it's a good name if it's a good show, and I think it's okay. a bad name if it's a bad show. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm a great believer that um, the name the name becomes uh, good. If in fact it represents something, um, I like I like the idea of a cup of tea and a chat because it it sort of is the opposite 
of what somebody would think of a guy like you who basically is extremely hip and, uh, you know, to, to, to weed through all the possible adjectives and adverbs. You're a hip guy. And a cup of tea <laughs> well, and a chat. I, I'm secretly sounds- an old man on the inside. So that cup of tea and a chat is really more like my real life. Uh, thank you for asking about it. So here's what happened. So at the end of my 30 year run at K-Rock, I left the station. I left the show in November of 2019. And then my wife and I moved over here a couple of weeks later. And I really, my goal was, Michael, to get a job in UK radio. That's what I was hoping. I wanted to kind of continue the career that I had had so much success with in the United States and hopefully have somebody give me a, a shot at being on the radio here. Now, I knew I had a few things going against me. I knew my age wasn't doing me any favors. And I knew especially my dumb American accent wasn't something that people here were going to be like, oh, my gosh, put an American accent on the air. That's so sexy. So I knew I had some, <laughs> I knew I had some ground to make up. What I wasn't counting on is the pandemic coming in, shutting everything down and every single opportunity that I might have had to do any kind of networking, all of the radio events that were scheduled, all of the talks, all of the get-togethers, everything, all of that was out the window. So essentially, I I really didn't have much opportunity to kind of meet people and, and make my way into UK radio. So a few months went by and I met, you know, just like you, if you don't get behind a microphone for a few weeks, you really start to miss it, right? There's something about us that makes us want to communicate and want to talk about the issues of the day. It's how we process it. Sometimes I don't know how I feel about something until I talk about it on my podcast. So my wife kept bugging me. She's like, you know what? Your friend, Allie, Allie McKay, who worked with us on the last five years of the Kevin and Bean show, she's so great. I'm telling you, she told me, my wife said this, if you don't, if you don't do a show with her, somebody else is. And then when you decide you're going to want to do a show, and I know you are, you're going to be really sad that you didn't get her. And I thought, you know what? You're right. So Allie and I had been speaking about it. We decided, let's go ahead and do it. So in October of last year, we debuted our podcast that we're doing three days a week. Each episode runs between an hour and a half, hour and a half. And the response, Michael, has been so heartwarming, so overwhelming. I mean, I've been gone for a year. I had no idea that there were thousands of people out there who not only remembered me, but missed me and were willing to pay a small fee to hear this show. Our minimum entry is $3 a month, which is 25 cents a show. For, mo- for most people who aren't used to paying for any kind of audio – I was stunned that they were were willing to sign up and do that, and it's going great, and there's such a lovely community, and we get so much great feedback, and it's honestly, it's one of the most satisfying things I've ever been a part of. It's on Patreon. That's where you can find it. A Cup of Tea in a Chat is the podcast, and then a few weeks ago, we also thought, you know, what about all the people who still don't know we're doing this because we don't really have a way to advertise if they're not following us on social media? How are they even going to know Allie and I do a show? So we also started putting out a free weekly sampler on all the regular podcast destinations like Apple and Stitcher and Spotify. And maybe someone will come across that and they'll hear that hour and they'll go, oh, these guys are pretty good. I'm willing to put down 25 cents a show and hear more. Is that the only way you monetize it or do you have advertising on it as well? We're at the beginning of that. We were contacted by a company called Misfit Toys and they do have a plan where they insert ads in and as you get more and more downloads on the free show, they kick back a little bit of that money to us. We haven't gotten to that level yet where we've seen it, but we're thinking that that may be where it it ends up. Um, We definitely wanted to keep the Patreon show exactly the way it was and not have the, the subscribers worry about commercials at all. So we only allow those in the free show and we'll see if that ends up being worth doing or not. I think it will be. 
Huh. Fascinating. Uh, I, I think, obviously, based on what you're saying, the, the title is not uh, consequential and that the title is not hurting anything. Therefore, it's helping. I found the title to be kind of interesting. And were you kidding when you, you said she was giving you uh, you know, pushback on it or, or was that oh, exactly true? Allie thinks it's a terrible name. <laughs> she wanted to call it uh, Bean and Abroad. That was her <laughs> pun because Ooh. of her being well, abroad about- and me being abroad, which is a very clever name as well. But for whatever yes. reason, I was I was already stuck on it. I liked the a cup of tea because it made me think of England. And, well, that, and I well think exactly. That, and and yeah. you think of England, you know, having been born and raised here, although I'm a big fan of England, I go there when I can and I'm looking forward to going back. You know, obviously the pandemic has destroyed tra- travel. But um, you think of England um, as being a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more uh, civilized. I, I don't know how true that is, but it's just the maybe because everybody has an English accent and there's certain things about England. But the cup of tea thing – and one of the things I find interesting is, like, you know, I used the word hip before, um, the Beatles. I mean, you, can, you, you can't think of anything for our generation and the generations that have come that is hipper. And, and I use that term as a, as a catch-all, that is hipper than the Beatles. And yet, if you, if you look at old documentaries and you look at films of the Beatles, at their youngest, when they were at the peak of Beatlemania, they would have a spot of tea. They, 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 <laughs> they and I always found that interesting. Guys like John Lennon and George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and we had a cup of tea and we talked about, you know, side two of Abbey Road. It, 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 it's kind well, of a, they, I don't know, do you get stop, what I'm they saying? They stop being British just because they got famous. I mean, they're always going to want to, look, I have tea every single day and I always put a pot on and have some tea in my hand when the show starts. I mean, I literally am drinking a cup of tea as I have the chat with Ali every day when we do the episode. It's just kind of part of life here. Okay, let's pivot. So, so here you are. You, you're, you're back in England. You went home. You, you were born in, in England. You're a citizen of England, of the UK. Uh, you come to the United States. Part of your story is you're in a Navy family. Um, how, how, and, and then you're back in England and you have an American accent. Uh, this, mm. this is like a fractured picture here. So let me, let me try to put it together a little bit because it, it, it confused me. And I'm sure there are people that are maybe a little confused. How were you in a Navy family? Were you in the Royal Navy or the U.S. Navy? <laughs> no, no. My father was a United States Navy veteran. Ah. He was in England and met my mother. They ah. married started a family here. My brother and I were both born in the UK, lived here for a few years, and then went around the world and lived in places like Spain and lived in the Philippines and lived in Hawaii and ended up finally back in mainland US, uh, the Washington DC area. My dad ended up at the Pentagon for many, many years in civil service after he retired from active military service. And that's where I ended up going to high school and going to college was in the Maryland um, in, in the Maryland school system there. So just fall in love with radio every step of the way. As a little kid, though, I still remember listening to Armed Forces Radio and hearing Paul Harvey and hearing Casey Kasem uh, and uh, much later on people like Rick Dees. But uh, I, I when I and then when I got to America and I have very I have a terrible memory, Michael, but I things that have to do with radio do stick with me somehow. When I got to America and realized how much more there was than what I was hearing on Armed Forces Radio that there were dozens of radio stations that were on 24 hours a day with all of these DJs. Oh my God. I almost never wanted to go to sleep. I never wanted to miss a minute of what was on the radio. And I just, it took over my whole life. I, my whole life, there's never been a time from the time I was a little kid that I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And I consider myself so blessed, so lucky a to have found my passion, but B 
and more improbably that I was able to get into this line of work and make an actual living doing it. And I'm still doing it today as a senior citizen, as a pensioner here in the UK. I'm still <laughs> able to make a living doing a little podcast. It's just a it's a love story. I, I couldn't be happier. So so as uh, it sounds to me like you really are an American. I, I mean, you, you were you, you were in school in America. You were raised on American pop culture. You had a career in America and you have an American accent. What was it inside of you that made you see going back to England as somehow making your way back home? Well, I mean, my entire adult life, I've come to England at least once a year because I have a lot of family here. My mother was one of seven siblings, so I always had people to go see and people to go visit. And I love Europe. My wife and I have gone to Spain so many times. We've gone to uh, Italy so many times in France. And we have all these places we're dying to go once the pandemic ends. We can't wait to go to Budapest. We can't wait to go to Prague. I mean, we just love Europe. And I feel like, you know, I was approaching 60 years old at the time I left K-Rock. And I thought, you know, maybe now's not the right time to go. But who knows how much time we have left? I don't want to be a guy who's now 75 and going, wow, why didn't I move when my health was good and I could afford it? Why didn't I go? So we just thought it Let's go. Let's go for it and see. We have no idea the pandemic was going to spoil all of it for us. But there was always something calling me back, pulling me. People people always have a pull to their hometown. Don't you think? I mean, when you go back to where you went to high school, you still feel something, even if you've been gone from there for decades. Uh, yeah, and, and a lot of this has to do with individuals' experience and, and whether their childhoods were great or their lives were great or yeah, they had sure. experience someplace. But but there is a thing about um, – you know, I, I talk to my son about this all the time. The pizza in the local pizza joint that you grew up in in your town made the best pizza in the world for the rest of your right. life. They, <laughs> right, yes. we, we become um, biased to certain things. We, that, that we were, talked about it for a long time. We talked about, hey, one day wouldn't it be fun to live in England? My wife has visited here so many times. She's never had the opportunity to live. So we just thought, what the hell? Let's do it. And uh, so far, with the exception of you know the pandemic asterisk, we are, have been delighted to be back. We're so happy to be here. We really are. And also, you uh, in in studying your history and, and following you, uh, you felt thirty years was enough. I mean, when you left the KROQ show, it was still doing very well. It wasn't like they forced you out, unless there are things going on I don't know about, and perhaps stuff you don't even want to get into. But um, th- there's all kinds of stuff in in your story about uh, emotional issues and, um, and and you wanted to stop doing it uh, what, what, what's what was all that about well you're right a couple of years before I ended up leaving I do think that I got to a point where the pressure started to get to me look I'd been doing the job for a long time at a very high level and doing a morning radio show as so many of your listeners know Michael who have done it is not a five morning a week job. It's a seven day a week job, day and night. You never stop preparing. You never stop pulling audio. You never stop reading. You never stop editing tape. There's so much you have to do to be prepared when the mic goes on at 5 a.m. on Monday. And I think I got tired. I honestly think as much as I love doing it, I could see at some point it would be nice to not have to do it. And that's, I took myself off the air for a few weeks in 2017 or 18, I don't remember. And I said, I, I need a little bit of a, a reset here because I'm starting to get anxious about it. I'm starting to get nervous. I started to have nightmares. There were times, Michael, and I haven't really talked about this much, but I mean, there were times where I would be sitting down waiting for the show to start and the mic to go on and my first break to happen. And I thought, oh my God, what if I don't remember how to do this anymore? What if I forget how to do a radio show, which is insane. It's something I could do in my sleep, right? But that's what was going on in my head. And I thought, you know what? 
and and I think I, I think now more than ever, people are taking their mental health tips seriously. If they're if they're not feeling well, they get help and they worked, they take they deal with it. They, don't, they don't ignore it like we used to, right? right? And and the station was great about giving me the time off and saying we're here when you want to come back, and if you don't want to come back, we respect that as well. But a few weeks went by, and I was charged up and ready to go, and that's when I made the announcement. When I came back after that brief break in 2017 or 18, whatever it was, I said, you know what? I, I think I want to leave, but let's make it a great last year and a half. And that was it. So a year and a half went by, and true to word, uh, that's when I left. Well, you you really did reveal yourself on the air. I mean, talk about reality shows and talk about uh, living your life on the radio. You shared a lot of very personal stuff with your listeners, and uh, you you walked the walk as well as talking the talk. I mean, you did it. You walked. <laughs> you went. And uh, <laughs> right. Uh, and, are you, and by the just, way, and that was extreme. That was extremely rewarding to hear so many people. And I still hear from people today who said you being open about your struggles in that situation gave me the courage to do the same. And that makes me feel so, so good that I was going to help anyone in any way. So I, I'm grateful for it. I think it was the right decision to make. The last thing I wanted to do was keep going and be burned out or, you know, not do a good job on the air or end up getting fired or whatever. I think I had to I had to take care of myself at that time. And you're feeling good now. I mean, aside from the uncertainty of the COVID era and, you know, not getting to travel and all the things that we're all dealing with, I, I assume, and, and I'm, I'm asking you this for the, out of respect for our listeners and my own curiosity, uh, you're, you're, you're feeling better. I mean, you, you, you've moved beyond that, I assume. Yes, I do feel great. You know what I'm running into now that I am 61 is uh, the same thing everybody, the same thing you ran through is that people have this idea of what an old person is. And those of us who are old people on the inside don't feel like that at all. (laughs) That is a a constant tug because I, like so many of us, feel so much younger than I actually am. And I get terrified, Michael. I don't know if you read the obituaries, but I see so like the the man who just uh, had the heart attack and uh, the cumulus guy in D.C. was what, 63, 64 years old. I was like, oh, my God. That's like three years away from me. Please tell me that's not all the time I have left because I feel like I want to live another 40 years. I feel alive and young and vibrant and excited about life, and I can't wait to see what the future holds. Well, I I have personally lost, and and some of the personal people I've lost are people that many in the industry have lost because, you know, being in the industry as long as I have, uh, so many of my closest friends are in the industry. And for those listening to this, uh, when I say the industry, I mean the radio and the the communications industry. a number of people have died. Now, people are always dying. You know, I mean, it's it's part of life, obviously. But um, I, too, have lost some very, very close people in my life, some of them very well-known broadcasters, some not so well-known. And it does make you stop and think. Um, but then again, if you look back at your life, we've also lost people who, who died at their, in their 20s and 30s and 40s. You know, <laughs> nothing's yeah. guaranteed. So, nothing is, but, but nothing is guaranteed is kind of my takeaway. And that's, what, that's when Donna and I made the decision to leave K-Rock and move to, move to England was because nothing is guaranteed. We wanted to make sure we did it while we still could. So what's your view of the world? What's your, you've been quoted as saying a number of things uh, about uh, politics, about democracy, about uh, the presidency, the presidencies that we've seen in the last few years. Uh, and now you've got the perspective of being in, in another country full time. Um, how, do, how does the, U, the U.S. And, and our current situation uh, under a new president um, and uh, this new era into which we feel we are sort of, you know, taking 
taking baby steps into very cautiously. What's your view of, of the world? Well, you know that's a dangerous question to ask because the, no matter what my answer is, it's going to tick a lot of people off because there's no such thing as just respecting somebody else's opinion anymore. If I say something you disagree with politically, now I have to be demonized and I don't deserve to live. That's the world we're living in. Let me take you back to the day after Election Day in 2016. I was still at K Rock in Los Angeles. And like many people, most Americans, I think we all expected to wake up to the news that President Clinton had been elected, right? Well, Donald Trump wins, and we're all trying to wrap our heads around how did this happen? I can't believe it. And I went on the air that morning. We opened up the show 5.30. So how about that election, right? And I really, at that point, believed in the strength of American democracy. And I thought, you know what, guys? We have a great system in this country that survived for 250 years of checks and balances. How bad can he be? We've had bad presidents in the past. There's a long list of presidents. There's James Buchanan, there's Richard Nixon, and there's Calvin Coolidge. There's all these presidents that we now look back on in history and go, wow, were they terrible. But America survived, and America had better days ahead. How much damage can this guy do? I had no idea in that four years how much everything would change. And I think when the books are still being written in 100 years and the documentaries are being made, I think the the takeaway for Donald Trump's administration is going to be that he broke America in some ways. Not the least of which is he created the media as the enemy. There are always people who are suspicious of the media. There have always been people who have complained the media is biased. But he turned the media into an enemy. And that gave millions and tens of millions of people the opportunity to say, I just choose not to believe what they're reporting as fact. And it's as a result of that that so many of our other problems – And I'm not just talking about America. I'm saying in other places around the world, this is the attitude that has now caught fire now, which is I don't believe that a vaccine is going to help me because I choose not to. I don't care what the science says. I've just decided that's not the that's not a fact. That's Donald Trump's legacy. And I think it has infected everything about the modern world right now. So how am I feeling? I'm disillusioned, certainly. I don't know what the way back is. I am hoping that uh, the next generation of people will come along and save us and and make it better. And we'll figure out some way to go forward from this point. But I don't feel like it's looking very good so far. Quite often, new problems create new solutions and relegate old uh, syndromes to the past. Uh, I think perhaps what we need is a new problem that can unify us. <laughs> it, but wouldn't uh, you have thought that coronavirus would be the problem? It would be like World War II and all of a sudden we'd all be on the same side? That's not how it happened at all. People were fighting about masks from the minute this virus was announced. You really make a good point when you bring that up because you're right. Um, if, if, if I had a chance to direct this movie or if this were you know just a script, I would say, hmm, Maybe we should have the coronavirus be the thing that, you know, the, the, the comet that hit the earth, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the thing that brings people together. Maybe we need aliens. That's the only thing I can think is maybe if, if you, the aliens actually did arrive on the mall in Washington, D.C., we would realize we're all humans and we're all on this world together and we're all brothers and we need to unite and deal with whatever is happening with these aliens. But short of that, I just don't see any breakthrough. I, I really don't. And it is discouraging. And I'm not going to lie, 
you know, I did interviews on KNX in Los Angeles and other stations at the time I was leaving because it was fairly big news in the local market. And I said, one of the reasons that I want to go now is because I don't like living in a Donald Trump America because I'm telling you people, there's going to be a civil war at some point. And don't think I didn't think about that as I was watching the events at the Capitol unfolding on January 6, 2021. I thought this is the civil war that I was afraid of, that people were literally going to take up arms and and attack. And that's what's happening. And it's frightful. And you know that something like that can still happen again. It's not like that was a one and done. Well, anything could happen with the human condition because within our DNA, all of the good and all of the bad that's ever happened anywhere exists in each and every one of us uh, to, to believe that it can't happen here or, oh, well, they're the kind of people where that could happen, but it couldn't happen here. You know, that type of thing. Nonsense. Nonsense. Anything that happened anywhere in the past could happen again because it's in our systems and we haven't made that much progress. So, no, so you're, 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 you're absolutely abso- right. You're absolutely right. And, and I will tell you, and, I, and you tell me if you if you agree or, or disagree with this, I also my belief in American exceptionalism that I was taught my entire life growing up from my parents and from my school and from the government itself has been completely shattered. I don't think there's anything extraordinary about America now. I don't think it's the greatest country in the world. And I think that that's healthy for us to realize that because we ought to be trying to make it better. Well, this is also one of the dividing lines of, of, of the viewpoint of, of this whole thing is that um, America is, no, is known for its dissent, that the, the right to dissent is part of being an American. And yet if you call people who engage in dissent or protest hating the country – well, wait a second. You've just you just capsized the whole principle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole that's the right. Whole, uh, you, you know, it's so interesting. You do not you do not knock today. the country. You know, is is usually totalitarian, um, right? So uh, we, you know, what it comes down to it comes down to education. It comes down to you've, for 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 us to work our way out of this complicated era in which we are entrenched. We have to have the long game again, not the short game. The long game, and that is start thinking about how do we educate our children so they can be worthy of voting and having a democracy going forward. Because if people don't have education and they don't have goodwill and they don't have principles and they don't have ethics, well, democracy could be a terrible form of government. Because well, the, the PS to that is beyond what you, the parent, and you, the school system teach is now what are you going to do about that child's choice of media consumption? Because that's going to have a lot more effect on any than anything you've tried to tell them. Once they choose who their media outlet is, that's going to define their worldview as much as anything thing or more. In conclusion, because I, we have to cap this, because we, we, we would go on forever, and um, I, I hope I have the opportunity to speak to you more and many times. Um, the, the the UK is going through its own problems on every level, from uh, new era in in the ongoing controversy about the monarchy to Brexit to its handling of the pandemic to its relationship with the U.S. Uh, Boris Johnson is an interesting character. How do you feel uh, about uh, the state of things in the UK and the direction it's heading? I think we have some of the same problems as America does. I like Boris Johnson more than many of my countrymen do. And I think the reason is because I did live under Donald Trump. Boris Johnson in many ways is as incompetent as Donald Trump, but I don't think he's coming from a place of evil. 
I think he honestly is trying to do the best he can. He's just not very good at it. I think Donald Trump was not trying to do the best he can. He was only trying to do what was good for Donald Trump. Um, I'm optimistic. We also have a system here that's very different from the form of U.S. government where we have elections every four years for president. If it gets to the point where the people say Boris Johnson is doing a terrible job with fill in the blank, whatever it is. They just hold an election in parliament and he's out tomorrow. I mean, we can make a change at the top anytime we want in this country. So um, I think we will I think we will self-correct as we go. I love Britain. I think it's a great country and I hope it has a great future. And there you have it. An uninterrupted conversation with Gene Baxter, known to his millions of radio fans as Bean. You can check out Gene Bean Baxter and his co-host Ali McKay's program, A Cup of Tea and a Chat with Ali and Bean, on Podcast Radio UK at thepodcastradio.co.uk. By the way, this podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, is also carried across the United Kingdom on Podcast Radio UK. Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, on the Podcast One app and for following our Tuesday tweets announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MH Interview. I can be reached directly via email at michaelatalkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in hearing my weekly one-hour radio show, The Michael Harrison Rap, check out mhwrap.com. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison, The Michael Harrison Interview. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Interview is a presentation of Podcast One in association with Good Phone Communications and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.